for me it looks like much the better it's easy, it's more easier than english you know it, it's it's not as complicated as the mechanics of english you know and yet english is still english i don't i don't see no big difference after all you know but you know the english man is still trying to complicate all issues you see I'm Frank Ling, and this is Berkeley Grocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, magnetic bacteria, branding, and chili Pluto. In addition, we'll be joined by Mitch Kapoor, who will talk about open source software. Also, we'll find out what the gallbladder does. So stay tuned for all this, plus the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. Coming right up here on Berkeley Grocks. I'm Frank Lee. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? Hmm. <laughs> well, if you have to think about it, maybe not so good. <laughs> Actually, my answer is magnetic. Magnetic. Ooh. Are you generating a magnetic field? or? Uh, I wish I was, but it turns out bacteria are better at doing that. Uh, yes, and they're also better at also sensing the magnetic environment as well. Uh, yes. Uh-huh. And that's something uh, some scientists have taken advantage of in building a better uh, wastewater sewage system. Okay. I wouldn't have thought the two would go together. Well, um, so actually in a lot of uh, treatment plants, they use activated sludge, a process by which they use bacteria, uh, which chew up organic pollutants. Mm -hmm. And these bacteria tend to clump up together. Uh, Right. Yeah, they clump up into a ball. It's called flocks, and they usually uh, settle to the bottom of the tank. But one of the drawbacks is that uh, bacteria can have these fibrous or filamentous elements which make it float in the water a lot longer. Mm-hmm. So one solution that uh, Yasuzo Sagai, a, a professor of uh, applied chemistry in Japan, has has uh, been successfully doing was adding little bits of uh, rust or magnetite, mm-hmm. uh, it's iron-3, oxygen-4, into a sludge. So bacteria will consume it and putting a magnet at the bottom of your uh, sewage. Right the uh, bacteria will eventually fall oh, okay. down much faster. Right, it makes sense, yeah. Uh, it's surprising nobody's thought of that but that before because uh, certainly these bacteria were well known to be attracted to them. Right. right, but since these bacteria have the actual iron particles in them, it's very easy to uh, <laughs> right. pull to, it Right, to pull them out. I, I, I'm thinking of uh, you know eating magnetic particles myself just... <laughs> <laughs> Just for fun. Well, I mean, I, I guess there's some evidence that uh, humans have vestigial uh, magnetic organs in their brain mm-hmm. that have have these uh, magnetic particles and also can sense magnetic fields around you. But I think 
I guess just from evolution, we've sort of lost that ability. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure about that, but uh, certainly other species do. Birds obviously have right. an unerring sense of it, but. Cool. So if you want to learn more about uh, attracting bacterial sludge. It's in a recent edition of Chemical and Engineering News. Well, I think one place you might want to take that uh, magnetic uh, particles to is Pluto. To Pluto? Yes, because uh, no bacteria would want to go there otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> It's it's apparently much colder than its largest moon, Charon. Really? And this, so it must be freezing. It is pretty darn freezing. Apparently, Charon is 53 degrees above absolute zero. Okay. Uh, and ten, uh, Pluto is 10 degrees colder, so 43 degrees. Wow, I could do some amazing experiments with that kind of uh, coldness. I, you know, you could take a hot thermos of Starbucks and see what <laughs> see what happens up there. Uh, so this is actually a very new measurement that was recently released from a. Uh, group of telescopes in Hawaii called the Submillimeter Array, uh-huh. and uh, before this point, uh, no one had actually been able to measure the uh, temperature because the uh, telescopes uh, did not have the resolution to um, detect those thermal wavelengths. I see. But I guess with the new array, they were able to actually get this measurement and show that Pluto is actually colder than its moon. It's, it's actually fascinating, and uh, I think the reason they suggest that is because of Pluto's slightly larger mass, uh-huh. um, it's able to hold on to some nitrogen. And the nitrogen, which vaporizes, actually forms a small, uh, I guess, atmosphere around the planet. Okay. And so some of the energy that uh, normally would go into heating the planet actually goes into vaporizing the nitrogen. And oh, so as a result, okay. it's actually colder, yeah. It's a perspiration effect, huh? <laughs> Cooling off, because it's, you know, so hot out in the middle of deep space. Uh, so fascinating work if you ever <laughs> wondered what the uh, temperature of Pluto was. Very cool. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. And uh, this was interesting work and uh, told in a recent edition of The New Scientist. So, Charles, what's your favorite brand? Is it Louis Vuitton or uh, Intel Inside? (laughs) Uh, It's Martha Stewart... uh, (laughs) A living. Ah, yeah. the big O, right? Or is it? <laughs> I think that's Oprah's. Oh, okay. <laughs> but I have no brand loyalty, so I'll buy it all. <laughs> Especially if it's at Target and, you know, made <laughs> cheaply. In China. <laughs> yeah. Thank God for the exchange rate. <laughs> <laughs> so scientists have always wondered how uh, brands get so um, embedded into the psyche. And a um, recent study um, carried out by John O'Doherty, uh, currently at Caltech, has shown uh, some of the Pavlovian-type conditionings that uh, you would get with uh, geometric shapes. And so uh, since this is hardwired into our brains, and it was most likely an evolutionary advantage for us to have such type of correlations, uh-huh. today it's, you know, what we see is a, a strong association of a, of a like or dislike with a, with a brand label. I see. So basically the logo that a brand has right. has some kind of intrinsic value based on what was initially some kind of innate storage in our brain. Right. And um, our, our brains can identify geometric right. very easily. So they have a strong, I guess, emotional impact somehow. Right. Oh, interesting. I always found a triangle particularly sexy. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> the upside down one? <laughs> I'm not sure. Well, or circles. Ah. Can anything be more sexy than a smooth circle? <laughs> it is the one. <laughs> It's unity. So does this suggest then uh, particular uh, logos might be more effective than others? 
not in particular, but it just shows that geometric shapes can be easily associated with a certain initial feeling. I see. So uh, when designing, I guess, a logo, the simplicity of the geometric shape might be best. <laughs> right. So this was uh, found in a recent edition of Neuron. I'm going out and getting the brand today. <laughs> Alright, so do you like spinning? Do I like spinning? Uh, well, I like to spin electrons, but <laughs> not my head. Uh, the up-down rule. Yes. Alphabell. <laughs> uh, so it turns out that uh, researchers are trying to miniaturize gyroscopes to help detect particles in, I guess, your blood. Oh, wow. So they're using uh, some xenon crystals or quantum dots or something? Uh, well, it's actually a, uh, a vibrating disc uh-huh. about the size of a small chip. And uh, I guess it can be made from a number of different types of surfaces. Right. But the important thing is that uh, uh, by measuring the vibration of the particular um, small little wafer, okay. they can actually tell if something is clumped onto the wafer, how much it weighs. Huh. So if you imagine a, a vibrating little top, right. something grabs onto it to start vibrating a little more wobbly. Okay. And so by measuring that wobble... The precession. Yeah, the precession. You can determine, I guess, the weight of some kind of protein or whatever that's bound to it. Oh, wow, it's cool. Yeah, so it's uh, they think it's a novel method for, I guess, biodetection. <laughs> Mass spec. <laughs> Mass spec, yeah. <laughs> um, I guess that's essentially what it is, right? Uh, the wobble mass spec. And uh, this was actually uh, created by Callum McNeil and his colleagues at the University of Newcastle. And he came up with the idea when he was talking with engineers who were complaining about imperfections that caused their little miniature gyroscopes to wobble. And he realized, well, we could actually use that to measure the weight of various things. Huh. So. Well, I know the earth wobbles, so... <laughs> well, and it's because of all... Is. Yeah, all these people clumped onto it, I think. <laughs> um, anyway, so very cool stuff. It was... Uh, if you want to know more, I guess you can take a look uh, at uh, the Professor McNeil's website at the University of Newcastle. And that's all for a look at current developments in the world of science and technology this week. This is Berkey Grosh you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. Coming up, Mr. Mitch Kapoor joins us to talk about the open source movement. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Berkeley Grox today. Well, today we have a very special guest, Mr. Mitch Kapoor of uh, Lotus 123 fame. Back in the 70s, he started the Lotus Development Company, uh, was the key designer to Lotus 123, uh, one of the very first known killer apps for PC. Uh, today, he's heavily involved in the open source movement, and in fact, as early as, as the 90s, he co founded the Electronic Frontier Foundation. In 2001, he also founded the Open Source Applications Foundation, and in 2003, he came on board the Mozilla Foundation. Today, he serves as an instructor here at the UC Berkeley campus. Uh, Mr. Kapoor, thanks very much for joining us today. Well, it's great to be here. Thank you. So first of all, uh, just to 
get the gist. What exactly is the open source movement, and uh, what does that mean for the average person out there? Well, the open source movement is about a different way of making and distributing computer software, uh, which is really it's characterized by a large body of decentralized volunteers uh, working on projects, uh, collaborating through the internet, and distributing uh, the results of that work uh, for free to people. And would you consider this to be a natural evolution of uh, information technology? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, first of all, the Internet, by being a worldwide network that links people and the World Wide Web on top of that, enables the kind of massively distributed collaboration. The, the kind of model within the open source community actually has its roots in, in scientific research and other mm -hmm. activities that aren't principally about economic gain, but about uh, a common project. Okay, an openness mm -hmm. where everyone can right. communicate with each other. And in right. fact, some of these ideas were first um, suggested by a Licklider back in the 50s, is that right? Right. Well, there's a whole tradition, J.C.R. Licklider at MIT, but Vannevar Bush, after World War II, wrote a very influential article called As We May Think that really had the whole vision of the net and the web and, and collaborative knowledge production. And when we talk about open source, it, it should, you know, ideally be independent of any platform or, or language. Um, these days, um, frameworks such as Java and Ajax are now becoming more prevalent. Do you think they will actually be one of the major uh, mediums for uh, openness in the future? Well, let me try to unpack that a little bit. Java is a computer language uh, developed uh, by Sun Microsystems that is not yet fully open source. But it is uh, cross-platform, runs on all different types of hardware. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of momentum uh, to make it uh, even more open than it already is. Um, Ajax is a way of building uh, more sophisticated, more user-friendly uh, interfaces inside a web browser to run applications. That's certainly a pretty important um, enabler. And, you know, browsers run on all computer platforms, Windows, Mac, Linux, little handhelds. And so mm -hmm. Ajax and the browser are, are a big step towards a kind of a more uh, universal, uh, free, and open base for uh, computer applications. I will also say one thing, that open source is about more than just software because now there are uh, big projects like the Wikipedia, mm -hmm. which is a, a free online encyclopedia that uh, is built on exactly the same principles. And speaking of these principles, um, there's been a lot of concerns that beyond the uh, information industry, also in the uh, sciences and uh, biotechnology, there's a proprietary nature that seems to be um, preventing uh, a lot of innovations from occurring. Uh, do you believe this open uh, source model can also be applied to the biology, physics, and chemistry? Well, there's certainly a huge amount of interest in applying open source methods, which have been very successful in information technology, into, uh, into the life sciences and, and, and in biotech. I think the jury's still out on where it will be applicable and where it won't and how much uh, it will, the methods will have to be modified. But I definitely think that there's a lot of potential there. And there's certainly, for instance, uh, low-hanging fruit. So uh, mm -hmm. in scientific publishing, there's no reason that this open access model that is uh, now being uh, widely developed uh, in which all of the scientific literature will be online and freely available, uh, there's no fundamental reason why that won't happen and it should happen. 
and it would be a good thing, and it will definitely uh, promote uh, innovation and the advancement of science mm-hmm. when and as it does. I, I guess a more recent controversy, uh, Google Print has come online, and there's been um, legal wranglings with many of the publishers. Um, what are your views on what's going on right now? Well, like the music industry, as we've seen over the past few years, the book publishing industry is pretty entrenched. It's tied to a particular kind of business model. And what the new information technology of the Internet threatens is that business model. And and the question is, how can we get from where things are now to uh, a world that a lot of people can um, you know, envision that would be a better uh, a better world. Um, I don't personally have an opinion on whether what Google, Google is trying to do with Google Print currently should be permitted or not. I absolutely know it's in the right direction. I mean, arguably a more collaborative approach rather than Google took a very in-your-face approach saying, we are just going to scan these books because we can do deals with people in libraries and we're going to make them searchable uh, whether you publishers like it or not. And you know, it's a it's a controversy. Um, I have to say, I know what kind of outcome I think ought to happen, but mm-hmm. I'm not sure what's the best way of getting there and whether Google is being appropriately aggressive or too aggressive. It's all going to get sorted out. And Google Print is not the only effort to put books online. There's what Brewster Kahle is doing at the Internet Archive, and he's got a whole consortium, and they're starting with out of... Uh, copyright books, that there isn't this kind of controversy to begin to get momentum to put the libraries of the world online. And beyond that, there are still other approaches. Amazon is going to start selling uh, uh, parts of books online and making them more freely searchable. So I think if you look at all of the experiments collectively, they're heading in the right direction. Uh, Last year, we had uh, Lawrence Lessig on to talk about the Creative Commons project. Are you optimistic that this will really take off and become uh, a mainstream part of the uh, culture? Yes, I'm quite optimistic about it. Uh, Open Source Applications Foundation actually shares space with Creative Commons uh, Mm -hmm. over, over, over in San Francisco. And, you know, in hindsight, Creative Commons is just brilliantly obvious that there need to be ways for people who create content to reserve some rights but to facilitate and permit reuse and remixing in a simple kind of, you know, one-click kind of way. And that's what the creative licenses do when they're embedded in technology. I mean, there are tens of millions of Creative Commons licensed digital objects already, web pages and pieces of music and and, and things like that. So it, it has a lot of momentum, and I think it will become an utterly mainstream kind of thing in a generation. So open source embodies fundamentals of democracy, of, of openness. You know, one of the criticisms here in the U.S. is right now we have a, a government that's uh, run by lobbyists, people where uh, basically one dollar equals one vote rather than one person, one vote. Uh, I mean, this is more of a general question, but what, what do you think the U.S. should do in terms of, you know, breaking down these corporate barriers? Couldn't agree with you more that it's a huge issue. And you mentioned I'm teaching a course over at uh, the Sims, and this actually happens to be the subject of the last class, which is democracy and open source. So Mm -hmm. in the U.S., we're supposed to have government of, by, and for the people, but it doesn't take a lot of insight to understand that we're extremely far from that right now, and that it is Mm -hmm. a huge problem. Open source movement much more embodies that spirit. The open source projects have kind of governance of, by, and for 
their participants. Mm -hmm. And so, first of all, there's a huge amount of knowledge transfer that could be done from the open source world to politics, just insights about and and possibilities uh, for democratic governance. So Mm -hmm. I'm excited about that possibility. Uh, But ultimately, it's the citizens of the U.S. that have the responsibility to get involved. Um, This idea that you're exercising your your responsibility as a citizen by voting once every four years is a very crazy idea. And so open source is great and there's a lot to learn there, but it's not a magic formula. People are going to have to get organized and rise up. You know, Wikipedia... um blogs and such technology are now becoming very prevalent and are contributing to this openness. Um, what about corporate entities such as Yahoo or Google? What are some of the exciting things you think they're doing? Well, so with the the big new entities like Google and Yahoo, if you compare them, say, to what Microsoft was in the last generation, I think there are a number of things that are different and there are some things that may be the same. So mm-hmm. we have to have a balanced view. I mean, It's impossible to imagine Google or Yahoo without an open Internet. Mm -hmm. People have to be able to do their own thing and have their own websites and create their own content for Google to work. So Google is never going to try to squash that or control it Mm -hmm. the way arguably in previous generations of Microsoft or an AT&T might have tried to if they could have. Uh, So that's that's a good thing. On the other hand, these big companies all seem to want to take over the world. (laughs) And, um, you know, there's a kind of a Google backlash in Silicon Valley now. Some of that is a bit selfish because it's very hard to do a startup when Google is hiring all the smart people and um, and going into lots of of businesses. But the question is, will a Google and a Yahoo exercise the power that they have responsibly? They have enormous power. Will they be accountable? Uh, Will they be sufficiently transparent? Will they protect? the rights of the data of the people who are using it. And there's no guarantee of that. It's Mm -hmm. a kind of thing where, you know, it depends. And so the users are always making choices about what they do, where they put their data, which services they use, what agreements they agree to when they do services. And there are alternatives. There are the big guys. There are some smaller alternatives. Pressure can and should be continued to be brought to bear on the Googles and Yahoos that they act in a responsible, accountable, reasonably transparent sort of way. And I think they can, but it's certainly not a guarantee. With the rise of uh, inexpensive digital technology for producing, writing, uh, videos, audios, and whatnot, where do you see the trend going with these technologies right now? Well, the trend is really to empower individuals and small groups and give them a much bigger voice and to have a distribution system via the net and the web that permits anybody to, uh, you know, be heard and seen. Now, that has pluses and minuses. On the whole, it's a great thing. There's a lot of noise. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of junk. And if people have nefarious purposes, you know, they can and do use the tools of the net for those purposes. And technology itself is never going to uh, prevent that. So we're in a new era where individuals and small groups are relatively empowered vis-a-vis large centralized organizations. So it's a different landscape. It's like moving from an ice age, you know, into a warmer climate. But that doesn't mean that the warmer climate is necessarily going to be benign. It can be hostile. Again, it doesn't come down to technology. It comes down to how it's used and what people do and the governance and policies by which the, the technology operates. 
And lastly, I want to ask about your uh, project Chandler. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Chandler is a new uh, open source personal information manager, and we encourage early adopters who want a kind of a first look at what we hope will be the Firefox of calendars to uh, download it and try it. So there's a, a client piece runs on Mac, Windows, Linux. There's a free server and hosted service for sharing calendars. And we think that's the killer feature. So for the first time, if people want to coordinate calendars easily and simply, whether it's two people or a small group, uh, they can do that without having to do Microsoft Exchange or something like that that's just infeasible. Not finished, not 1.0. But uh, good enough for early adopters to begin using. So we're excited. Awesome. Uh, I just want to thank you for your time today. Are there any last words you'd like to add about yourself or your current projects? Uh, no, thanks. You've asked a great set of questions. The most, I'll say one final thought. The most interesting thing, single thing in technology right now is the Wikipedia. So I encourage people not only to use it, but to find a way to make a contribution to it. Great. Thank you so much. And we were just talking to Mr. Mitch Kapoor, co-founder of the Electronic Frontiers Foundation and the more recent Open Source Applications Foundation. This is Berkeley Grok, you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, the Grokotron 5000, so stay tuned. Welcome back to Berkeley Grok's. Well, Mr. Kapoor has kindly agreed to join us on this week's edition of the Grokatron 5000, the computer formerly known as Deep Blue. Today's question is open source or not open source? And here are five subjects. Subject number one, open source or not open source? Super pop star Michael Jackson. Not open source. <laughs> Just bad code? I think it's a hardware problem. Oh, a hardware problem. Okay. All right. Uh, subject number two, uh, fictional character James Bond. Uh, started out closed source, uh, got opened up. But still a killer app, right? So definitely a killer app. <laughs> definitely a killer app. Subject number three, the Roman Catholic Church. Open source or not open source? Oh, definitely. Uh, it's a cathedral, not bizarre. So not open source. <laughs> subject number four, a celebrity of a different kind, Oprah Winfrey. Uh, yeah, she's open source. Brings uh, the community together, I guess. Well, no, I'm trying to think about what Oprah ought to do as an open source project, I think. Uh, but I have to, I'd have to give that some more thought. And lastly, our most recurring subject, uh, the President of the United States, George W. Bush, open source or not open source? Oh, definitely not open source. Just been in that airless room with the same set of visors much too long. <laughs> Needs to open it up to the community. Uh, got some fundamental problems in the assumptions. 
Well, Mr. Kapoor, thanks so much for joining us on the Crocotron 5000. Well, you're welcome. It was fun being here. And Voldemort returns with the answer to last week's question. What does the gallbladder do? Well, the gallbladder produces bile. It's good for digesting your greasy cheeseburger and other fats. And that is what the gallbladder does. Alright, this is Henry Kissinger with the uh, question of the week. As you know, there are so many things in the UN that is very, very, very big, but not so big as the universe. Well, you know how big the universe is, you can call us at UN or email at crocs at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but you'll get diplomatic immunity. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grocks. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us at Berkeley Grocks, you can email us at grocks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grocks, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grocks.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music. <laughs>